Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church. Well, good morning. Good. Um, I, I probably have said this before. Um, this all goes a lot better if you talk to me, okay? Um, otherwise, I don't know whether you're getting it or not, so I just keep preaching, and uh, we might be here all afternoon. Uh, so, you going to talk back to me? All right, there we go. Uh, that uh, Yes, sir, makes me feel really old. How are you guys doing this morning? Great? Good? You know, every time, uh, I don't know, they say this in Indiana, but in North Carolina, I'll ask somebody, how are you doing? And they'll say, oh, I'm living the dream. Uh, and uh, about half of the time, I think they mean that sort of tongue-in-cheek. Uh, they aren't really living the dream. They're not really uh, experiencing all they had ever hoped for. Uh, but it's just a, a, a way to respond to that. But I, I wonder this morning, sitting in the room, if I could ask you this. Are you, are you living the dream? Is, is this really everything you thought it would be? Are, are you where you thought you would be? Has life turned out like you expected? And the honest question, the honest answer to that question for most of us is, no, not really. This is not really what I thought it would be. Somehow I thought life would be a little easier. Uh, Somehow I thought things would go a little smoother. I expected some things to come a little more quickly. The reality of it is life has a way of uh, bringing to us a certain level of, of disappointment and, and hardship and, and difficulty. Um, I can tell you uh, that I am 64 with two teenage boys. They are 14 and 15. And parenting teenagers is more like a nightmare than it is a dream. It's not at all what I expected. I, I, don't, I don't know that I really thought it was going to be what it is, but... Uh, there's so many other things that are, are not quite what I expected them to be. And, and life has a way of bringing difficulty and hardship to us that often we weren't looking for or expecting. And the question is, as the people of God, how do we navigate that? How do we walk through hardship and pain and difficulty? Some of it very personal, some, some very much related to us, and then just the larger context of the world we live in. Like, I, I never in my life expected that one day we'd get to a place where on a regular basis I'd turn on the television and there'd be another mass shooting somewhere. I, I wasn't prepared for that. I, I didn't know that was coming. There's so many other things. But the question is, as the people of God, how do we walk through life experiencing hardship and pain and difficulty and still have a measure of what we sang about this morning? Confidence in the goodness of God, hope for the future, joy in our relationship to Jesus. How do we do that? Well, I'm going to tell you that I think primarily that comes to us because as Christians, we're supposed to live our lives more in response to the character of God than in reaction to our circumstances. As the people of God, Called, loved, cherished, belonging to Him. We're supposed to live our lives more in response to the character of God and less in reaction to our circumstances. 
But how do you do that? Well, that's what we want to do this morning. We want to look at Psalm 63, uh, a song penned by King David, a song that tells us, gives us clues about how to do that. You know what? I love to hear the people of God read the Word of God. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me. We're going to put it on the screen right here, and we're going to read it together. We're going to read this song together. Now, listen to me. If you're going to read the Word of God, I want you to read it with gusto. I want you to read it with expression. I don't want you to read it like it's boring. It's not boring. It's a grand and glorious thing that we have. So you ready? Okay, I'm going to critique you as we go. If you don't do it right, I'm going to stop you. All right? Let's read it together. All right? Oh, God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. They who seek my life will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. All right. You can be seated. On the surface, right, as you read that psalm, it doesn't sound that bad. I mean, it's filled with uh, joy and gladness and praise and a commitment to sing about the goodness of God. Honestly, until you get to the last couple of verses, it doesn't seem like David's situation is all that bad. But the description of the psalm tells us that David is in a tough spot. Just below Psalm 63 in your Bible, it very likely will say this, a psalm of David when he was in the desert of Judah. The background of this psalm sounds like the script from a soap opera. Do y'all even know what soap operas are? Uh, Think raunchy talk show. Here's how it goes. David has a son named Amnon who falls in love, or should we say probably lust, with his stepsister, Tamar. His obsession only grows until he devises a plan to, shall we say, Take advantage of her. He fakes being sick, asks his dad, King David, to let her come make him some chicken soup. When she comes over, he, he sends all the servants out and he makes his move. She protests and he rapes her. Then decides that he hates her and sends her away. When, his brother, when her brother Absalom finds out what's happened, he starts planning his revenge. For two years, Absalom plans what he's going to do, and eventually he kills Amnon. Then Absalom flees, and King David grieves because in essence he's lost two sons. 
But he never holds Absalom accountable. And a few years later, Absalom returns. But David just sort of sweeps the past transgression under a rug. Again, no accountability. And meanwhile, Absalom, who's very good looking and winsome, sets out to build a following. Eventually, he mounts a coup and ousts his dad. So David flees and heads for the desert with Absalom in pursuit plotting to kill him. In fact, the end of the psalm tells us that David is being threatened and lied about. All right, I told you it was messed up, right? By the way, how does that make you feel about your family drama? (laughs) Clearly, David is not in a place of abundance. David is not experiencing the fulfillment of all of his dreams. This is not what David had in mind when he responded to the call of God to be the king of the children of Israel. But rather, David is feeling the poverty of his circumstance. But here's what struck me. As I worked my way through this psalm, I noticed how very little David had to say about his circumstance. The prevailing focus of the psalm is the character and the sufficiency of God himself. And that right there, my friends, tells us what we need to know. What do you do when life is dark and hard? How should you respond when you are in the wilderness? When you're disappointed and bewildered? Here it is. You worship your way to satisfaction. You worship your way to satisfaction. That's what David did. He didn't highlight his heartache. He didn't recount his trouble and bemoan his disappointment. He set his heart and his mind on God. He worshiped his way into the abundance of God. He feasted on God when he was famished by life. We're going to walk back through this psalm. And I want to highlight for you five things that David knew about God that enabled him to worship in the wilderness. And I think these are five things that you and I can know and cling to and find ourselves worshiping in the wilderness of life. All right, let's look at it together. The first is this. David knew that God was his greatest treasure. David knew that God was his greatest treasure. Look at verses 1 and 2. He said, oh oh God, you're my God. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts For you, my body longs for you in a dry and parched land where there's no water. I've seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Listen, David had enjoyed great success and prosperity. He had been in the place of highest authority and great responsibility. He had experienced immense blessing and pleasure. But he did not set his heart on those things. David's longing was for God. He said, earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. In another season of hardship and difficulty, David would say in Psalm 27, 4, one thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. David had an unquenchable thirst. He had an insatiable appetite for God. He had tasted and seen that the Lord was good, and he wanted more of God. David had spent time with God, communing with Him, learning to know and delight in Him. 
And that experience of God fanned into flame a desire for more of God. More than David loved the idea of pleasant circumstances, he loved and longed for God. Y'all, I say that and that convicts my own heart. I want pleasant, I want easy, I want comfortable, I want prosperous. And yet here is David in a season of hardship saying, I'd rather have God. I'm longing for God. I'm looking for God. I'm chasing after God. Listen, for some of you this morning, the problem is that you just don't know God that way. Because you don't prioritize time spent with Him. John Piper says this, I love it. You can't savor what you don't see. You can't cherish and desire and love and enjoy and treasure what you're not aware of. He goes on to say, we can't daily be satisfied in the depths of our soul in Christ if we don't see and savor Him. And, Piper says, that can only happen by a steady meditation on the Word of God in the Bible. Listen to me this morning. Do you want to stir up your longing for God? Then you've got to get to know Him by spending time with Him in the Word. But I need to be honest with you today because some of you aren't hungry for God. You don't run to Him for satisfaction because you're still trying to satisfy yourself with other things. You don't have an appetite for God because you're feasting on so many other things. I've got uh, these two teenage boys. And uh, you know the favorite thing to do for a teenage boy? Do you know what that is? Eat. Uh, I, I pick my boys up in the afternoon and take them home. My, my wife's a school teacher. She has to stay a little bit longer. So I, I pick them up and take them home. And I finish my work day from the house. But the first place my children go, my boys go when they get home, is straight to the pantry. I mean, they drop everything and walk to the pantry. And my oldest one, um, he's 6'1", 190 pounds, and uh, he's got a pretty hefty appetite, and he will always eat. This younger brother is 5'10", he's about 130 pounds, and I regularly have to tell him, son, not so many snacks. I don't know if y'all say this in Indiana. In North Carolina, we say, don't, don't eat all those snacks because you're going to ruin your dinner. Do y'all say that, ruin your dinner? I don't know where that came from. I don't know how you ruin your dinner, but I heard it growing up. You're going to ruin your dinner. You're going to ruin your dinner. What am I trying to tell my son? I'm trying to tell him if, if you eat Cheetos and Cheez-Its and crackers and chips and junk, you're not going to really be hungry for the things that will sustain and strengthen and really give life and nourishment to your body. I want you to look at me this morning. Some of you are so full with the junk of the world that you have no space, no capacity, no hunger for God. You're not really full of the things that bring life and nourishment to you. You're just full. But for some of you, what you're chasing after is straight up sin. And sin will kill your appetite for God. But for some of you, the thing your heart is set on is not in itself a bad thing. But it, but it is something that has taken the place of your hunger and thirst after God. Because you've begun to believe that this thing will complete you, will give you life, will bring you joy, and that thing has become an idol to you. 
Jeremiah 2.13 says this, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Listen to me. Anything other than God will not satisfy you. Nothing else lasts. None of it endures. I, I, I did not get married until I was 47. And I spent a lot of time thinking about the joy and fulfillment that would come from being married. And I love my wife. And marriage is a great thing. But I, I need to tell you, if you don't know this already, marriage will not sustain and satisfy you. My wife's love for me is not enough because her love for me is imperfect. And it is temporary. Only the love of God for us is eternal. Only the love of God for us is essential. And you and I, in seasons of lack, need to remember that what we're really longing for, what we really need, what our souls thirst and hunger for is God himself. Because more than we need what God can do, we need who God is. So the first thing we need to know that David knew is that God is our greatest treasure. The second thing he knew was this. David knew that God was full of steadfast love. God was abounding in steadfast love. Look at verses 3 and 4. Because your love is better than life, he said, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. All right, that phrase, your love is better than life. What, what does that mean? What does David mean when he says that? I think what David is saying is this, to be loved by God is better than the best things life has to offer. God's love is better than the best things life has to offer. In, seasons of great, in a season of great loss, listen, David had lost the palace. He had lost the finer things of life that he enjoyed as king. He had lost his security. He had lost one son to death and another to betrayal. David had lost his position of authority and power and influence. And in that season of betrayal and loss, in the middle of all of that, he didn't plead for those things to be restored. David said he declared that to be loved by God was better than all the things he had lost. The very best that you can dream of in life doesn't even compare to the sweetness of the love of God for you. But our problem is this. We think a lot about the best this life has to offer. And we imagine how satisfying we think that would be. But we spend little time contemplating the greatness of God's love for us. Can I ask you this morning, what are you dreaming about? What are you imagining? What, what are you believing today would bring you satisfaction and joy and fulfillment and pleasure? Do you know the great love that God has lavished on you? That you should be called a son or a daughter of God. If we're going to walk through life faithfully through seasons of struggle and pain, particularly, listen, particularly when we're deprived of the best things of life, then we're going to have to be convinced that being 
loved by God, makes up for the lack. Let me ask you this. Do you struggle this morning to believe that God loves you? Do you struggle with that? Am I, only, am I the only person in the room who has asked that question, who's looked at myself and says, does he really love me? Can he really love me? Why? Why do we ask that question? Is, is it because of our current circumstance? Is it because of something in the past? Listen to me, your circumstances are not the measure of God's love for you. I thought about this just recently as I was walking through this and preparing this sermon. And this was profound for me. If that were the case, if God's love for us was measured by our circumstance, then Jesus could have concluded at several different points in his life that God did not love him. I'm going to say that again. If the measure of God's love for us was our circumstance, then Jesus himself could have concluded at several different points in his life that God did not love him. Jesus' confidence in God's love for him was not wrecked because he was poor. It was not devastated because he didn't have a place, the scripture says, to lay his head. He didn't lose his confidence in God's love because he was single or he missed out on having kids. It wasn't destroyed because he was lied about and falsely accused or because he was rejected by others and abandoned and betrayed by his friends. He was not devastated in his confidence in the Father's love for him because he was crucified. Until the very end, he was confident in the Father's love for him. His last words, Jesus' last words from the cross were, Father, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He had confidence in God's love for him. And you know what? You and I can have the same confidence. Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, I love that verse. You should memorize that verse if you haven't already. You know what I love about it? It's not past tense. Look at it. But God, say that word. Say that word, that third word. But God demonstrates. You know what it doesn't say? It doesn't say God demonstrated. It's not past tense. God's current today, 945 on Sunday morning, demonstration of his love for you is this. While you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. That's powerful. That's powerful. You and I need to arm ourselves with the truth of the word of God that tells us he loves us in order to combat the lies of the enemy. Otherwise, all you have when you come up to that confrontation is your own thoughts and feelings and opinions. And I can just tell you from personal experience, those those don't work very well in trying to do battle with the enemy. Listen, we've got to learn to know and believe and celebrate God's great, great love for us so that in seasons of want and difficulty and hardship and disappointment and pain, we don't believe the lie that he's not a God of love. So David knew that God was his greatest treasure 
He knew that God was abounding in steadfast love. The third thing he knew was this, that God was good and he did good to his children. Look at verses 5 and 6. David says, My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips my mouth will praise you. On my bed I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Now let me remind you that when David penned those words, his situation had not changed. There was no improvement in his circumstance. But he was expecting his good God to do good to him. Nothing about his circumstance had improved, yet he's anticipating satisfaction. He said, I'll be satisfied with the riches of foods. What's he saying? He's saying, by faith, I'm going to imagine myself being fully satisfied with Jesus. He's anticipating satisfaction. He's dreaming about the feast. When when he lies awake at night, he is recalling and recounting the goodness and the glory of God. He's not contemplating his trouble. He's feeding faith and hope, not nursing anxiety and fear. Okay, that's a good word right there, y'all. Because I often do this. I nurse anxiety and fear. I stir it up. I mull it over. When I, what I should be doing is feeding faith and hope by reminding myself that God is a good God who does good to His children. Negative rumination will kill your faith. Negative rumination. You know what negative rumination is? Negative rumination is imagining a future that is void of the presence and activity of God. Let me ask you this. When you think about what's down the road, do you think of it factoring in the work of God, the presence of God, the power of God, the goodness of God? Or do you imagine for yourself a future that completely dismisses the very real possibility that a good God might just act in your behalf? Y'all, I I got two teenage boys. Do you know how easy it is to go down that road? To imagine what will happen to them, what could happen to them? My my 15-year-old said to me uh, a couple months ago, he said, I think all your parenting is motivated by fear. I was like, okay. (laughs) What do you mean by that? This is what he said. He said, I think you and mom just have this worst case scenario in mind and you're just trying to keep that from happening. And I was like, well, not very far from the truth. (laughs) But y'all, this is what I said back to him. It's not fear, son. Your mother and I know what the consequences of of some of the things that you want to do. And wisdom would say you stay as far away from those as possible. But listen, y'all, i got to be honest with you. I can very easily fall into the trap of thinking what will happen in the lives of my sons if God doesn't break in on them. And sometimes I have a hard time imagining the work of God in their lives. But I need to be reminded that He's a good God who does good. Listen to me. In Christ, your future is secure. 
God's made way too many promises to us for us to believe the lies of the enemy. He's made way too many promises to us. One of my, our favorites at the summit is Ephesians 3.20. Y'all know this verse? Now to him who's able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all you could ask or imagine. All right, y'all, you got to stop and think about it. you gotta, you got to learn to read Scripture and think about what it says. Okay, it says that God is able to do more than I can ask or imagine. It doesn't, it doesn't just mean that God has an ability to do more than I can imagine. It also tells me that God has the ability to dream more than I can dream. You see, God can do more, not just because he has power, but because he's infinitely more creative than you are. I, I don't know if you understand this or not, but God has a better dream for your life than you do. Whatever you think the best thing that could happen to you is, God can trump that. Not just by putting an exponent out to the side and spinning your dream out. He can dream better for you sometimes by dreaming an entirely different dream for you. He's able. He's a good God. Genesis 50, 20. Joseph would look at his brothers and he would say, what you intended for evil, God meant for good. Listen, he's a good God, and he takes even the most horrible and wretched circumstances of life, and he works good. I don't understand how that happens, but I know it's true. So David knew that God was his greatest treasure. He knew that he was abounding in steadfast love. He knew he was a good God who did good to his children. And the fourth thing David knew was this. He knew that God was always faithful. He knew that God was always faithful. Look at verses 7 and 8. Because you're my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. I want you to look at this. Look at, look at the verse right there. Because you're my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. All right, look at it. Look at it. The middle phrases. The middle phrases. I sing in the shadow of your wings. My soul clings to you. Those are David's response. But look at this. They're bookended by the faithfulness of God. What's on either side? Because you are my help, your right hand upholds me. David's response to God is motivated by his recollection of God's faithfulness to him. He's singing about the help of God in the past. He's clinging to the hand that had been holding on to him. Y'all, an essential part of your own discipleship has got to be recalling and remembering and repeating the faithfulness of God to you. Do you know that the scriptures regularly tell us that the reason the children of Israel departed from God, were unfaithful to God, pursued idols, the reason they did that over and over again, the scripture says they forgot. They forgot what God had done for them. Why don't you stop for just a second and think about this, all right? You got a million people. You come up to the edge of a body of water. Pursuing you is a vast Egyptian army with chariots and horses and spears and javelins and whatever else they had. And they're coming after you. Now the whole time there's been a cloud in front of you leading you and you get to this body of water and that cloud 
comes up over the top of you and positions itself in between you and the army so they can't get to you. And then the sea in front of you splits wide open and you don't just walk through on mushy ground, you walk through on dry ground. And you get to the other side, all a million of you get to the other side and the cloud that's been blocking the Egyptian army lifts and they start into the sea, and they get in the middle of the sea, and all the water comes over and crashes. How do you forget that? How do you forget that? I'm going to tell you. The same way you forgot what God did for you last week. Or last year. Or five years ago and ten years ago. Listen to me. Forgetting is not passive. See, we think, oh, I just, I just, I forgot. I forgot. Forgetting is the result of not actively remembering. You see, the way you repeat, the way you remember the mighty works of God in the past is that you repeat them. You say them to yourselves. You tell them to each other. You call it back up. You remind one another of all the times and ways, small and large, great and mighty, insignificant in the eyes of some, you repeat what God has done for you. Y'all, that's a, an, an essential part of our worship. We've got to come together and call out and sing about the faithfulness and goodness of God because seated somewhere close to you is somebody who doesn't believe that or is struggling with that and they need to hear you remind them that God is faithful. That's why when you come in here, y'all ought to sing really loud. Really loud. You don't sing that loud. You should sing loud. Not because people need to hear your singing voice, but because they need to hear the truth. Get over yourself. What you sound like doesn't matter. The truth that you sing, the encouragement that you bring, the faith that you stir up in your own heart is what's essential. And that's why you and I have to be engaged in worship. I, I don't know if y'all... Uh, sing this. Listen, we, we need to repeat this stuff because others need to hear it. D David may have been lacking and wanting and hurting, but he didn't despair because he remembered the faithfulness of God. I don't know if y'all sing this. Uh, I mentioned it. Uh, it's a song we sing at home. I'm going to sing in the middle of the storm. Louder and louder, you're going to hear my praises roar. Up from the ashes, hope will arrive, arise. Death is defeated. The king is alive. Y'all, we need to sing that kind of stuff and say that kind of stuff to each other. I don't care if people look at you like you're weird. Well, you can be weird if you want to. I'm going to trust in the faithfulness of God. Y'all, we got to repeat that for each other. Finally, David knew that God was absolutely sovereign. He knew that God was absolutely sovereign. Look at verses 9, and, 9 through 11. Here's what David said. They who seek my life will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will praise him while the mouths of liars will be silenced. David was confident that God's purpose and plans would not fail. Listen to what he's saying. He said, God will not be defeated. The, those who are trying to destroy me will themselves be destroyed. The praise of God will not cease, but the liars 
will be silenced. Honestly, y'all, I don't know if David was thinking short-term or long-term. I don't know if he thought this would be fulfilled in his lifetime or not. You, you do understand that for the child of God, the promises of God are both now and future. They, they are both for now and both for the future. Listen, they're, they're not all for right now. We won't see the whole fulfillment of those in our own lifetime. I learned these verses years ago in a season of difficulty and hardship. Psalm 33, 10 and 11. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of His heart through all generations. Y'all, I needed that. Because if God can thwart the plans of peoples and nations, He can certainly thwart the plans and purposes of this person and that person and this entity and that entity and this situation and that situation. David trusted the sovereign purposes of God. And you and I have to learn to do the same. While all the promises of God are yes and amen, First Chronicles or 2 Chronicles 1.20, they're not all right now. I'm going to say that again. They're all yes and amen. God's going to fulfill everything He's promised. Not a single one of His promises will fail. But they're not all right now. You might have to wait. You might have to wait for a year or five years or ten years. You might have to wait until you're standing before Him face to face in all of glory. But here's what I can tell you. His faithfulness endures and His plans and His purposes and His promises won't ever fail. David trusted those sovereign promises. Listen, Paul's going to say in 1 Corinthians, if for this life we have hope in Christ, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people to be most pitied. Listen, if the best you can hope for is that God's going to give you your best life now, then you should be greatly pitied. Because God has made promises for us for all of eternity. Just like David, there is one who's seeking our destruction. David had an enemy, and so do we. The Bible says that he prowls about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But we can be confident because he will not succeed. Because Jesus has already won the victory. And one day... Satan himself will receive his final judgment and condemnation. Listen, like David, we can be confident that it's the praises of God that will endure, not the lies of the enemy. Here's what I know. Some of you this morning are experiencing real hardship. Significant loss. Deep pain unimaginable disappointment and heartache. But here's what I want you to know. The way out, the way through, is to lift up your eyes and look to the one who's your greatest treasure. 
look to the one who's abounding in steadfast love, who is eternally faithful, who is always good and does good, who is absolutely sovereign over every circumstance of life. And begin to set your heart on Him and look to Him and long for Him because He's more than enough. He's more than enough. The best that you and I can imagine here doesn't even compare to what God has prepared for us. And we got to learn to lift up our eyes and look at Jesus and worship in the wilderness. I think that's what enabled Paul and Silas to sing in the prison. I think that's why Paul would say to us, so I say again, rejoice. Rejoice in all circumstances. Always rejoice. Why? Because God is our greatest treasure. Because being loved by Him is better than the best things of life. Because He's faithful and He's good and He's sovereign and He can be trusted. Listen to me, church. You're not going to believe that. You're not going to believe that by staring at yourself and your circumstance. You're going to believe that by looking at Jesus. So this morning, lift up your eyes. Lift up your eyes. And learn to worship your way to satisfaction. To feast on your Savior in the middle of the famines of life. And believe, believe that God is good and He's worthy of our trust. Can we pray together? God, I thank you today. I thank you for your word. God, I'm so thankful that we have your word. That it shows us what men and and women that have gone before us, who've experienced Pain and heartache and disappointment and struggle and sickness. and God, they've experienced so much and yet they were able in those seasons to, to trust and believe and walk by faith. Because they had a vision of you. And God, I pray that you would open our eyes today to see what they saw. To know you the way they knew, knew you. So that we'll be faithful sons and daughters. So that we won't be derailed by the difficulties of life. But we would know and believe in the good, good, faithful love of our God who would send his only son to save us. God, we worship you today. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.